me ask you this morning, have you lost faith in your faith? You've lost faith even, you would say, in Christ. Now, you may not say that, but there are symptoms that are revealing what you really believe, such as you're doubting God's word about what he has said. I, I mean, you read it and then you know it's there, but, but you really don't believe that that's what he means by what he says. So you don't act on what he has said in his word. Uh, you question whether or not what he's asking you to do is really what you ought to do. And so you're trying to negotiate, to debate, to try to alter what it is that God has asked you to do and, and other things like that. And so what you're really demonstrating is whether or not you truly are trusting him though you may not say that verbally. And we all face that, right? We all have moments where we question what God is doing and we don't understand it. And so we question the, where we are with our faith. Now, in God's word, we have learned that there are those who have great faith. They knew that God is a God of great faith. He's faithful to his own. But they struggled in their faith. And we, there's some great lessons that we're going to be able to learn today. And what I want to do is a summary of what we've learned as we close out this uh, series on those who are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Let me just remind us. We looked at Noah, where there was faith for the persecuted. He's asked of God to build an ark, and he's mocked for doing that, being obedient to God. And God gave him the faith that he needed while being persecuted. We looked at Abraham, God called him to leave Ur of Chaldees, uh, which is Babylon today, and to go to a land he didn't know where he was going, to a place of the unknown, and God gives faith for the unknown in life. There was Joseph, who was the faith of a victim. He had faith as a victim. You know, uh, it's one of the few people in the Bible that there's no sin ascribed to Joseph. It's very interesting. We don't know what area of his life he struggled in his faith. But while he was persecuted and a victim of circumstances, uh, he was a man of great faith. Then we find Moses. The other day I was complaining to God about something, and, and I, I shouldn't have been, but I was, and... I thought of Moses. The Lord reminded me of Moses. Can you imagine how Moses led the children of Israel, two million people, for 40 years, and every day he heard complaint, complaint, complaint. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he did it. But God gave him the faith as a leader. We need that. I look at Rahab, one who was a great sinner but demonstrated great faith. So God gives us the faith that we need in our sin, as she demonstrated. We looked at the nation of Israel. While they, were, they had great faith for the battle they were facing going into Jericho, and actually the faith they would need to conquer all of the promised land that God had given them. And then, of course, we looked at Jesus, the hero of our faith, the hero of heroes. 
how he came and endured the cross and demonstrated great faith, trusting God in the mission that God gave him. Well, through that, there are several lessons and principles of all these characters that we can learn of how to exercise faith and demonstrate faith, how to live by faith. Number one, great faith requires great trials. We're often surprised by the trials that come to us. And as I said last week, not just one, but repeatedly, trouble after trouble after trouble, and the great faith that is required by great trials. Romans 4, Paul says about Abraham, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed without weakening in his faith. So he had great faith. Someone asked George Mueller, I'll share about him in a minute, a minister in the 1800s. They asked him the best way to have strong faith, and he said this, The only way to know strong faith is to endure great trials. I have learned my faith by standing firm through severe testings. I've said before that trouble is a spiritual growth hormone. Uh, we don't like it, but we got to have it. And uh, we need that for our own health spiritually. Just as there are storms that have physical elements in the physical atmosphere, there are spiritual storms that have spiritual elements in the spiritual atmosphere. And it is in this conflict of this atmosphere, spiritual atmosphere, that we find our faith fails or it becomes great. A person of great faith is one who suffered great storms when all of hell is attacking him, but he's anchored to Jesus Christ. And great faith does not mean you escape great trials. Don't be surprised. It's predictable that you're going to have trials. And what is God trying to do? The greater the trial, the greater the opportunity for you to demonstrate greater faith. Notice secondly, faith must trust God's will. You're praying, and at the end of your prayer, you say, but Lord, I'm praying this according to your will. And is that the right way to pray? Now, some will say that's not the right way to pray because you're showing lack of faith if at the end you say, but I pray this according to your will. My answer is, I think we just ought to pray like Jesus prayed, right? In the Lord's prayer, what does he say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Then in the garden of Gethsemane, what does he say as he's being tested? Lord, if there's any way for this cup to pass, he's asking the Father, if there's any way for this cup, that is the cross, to pass, let it happen. I really don't want to do this. We see the humanity of Christ, and this is where the real battle is taking place, not on the cross, but in the garden. And then what does he say? But not my will be done, your will be done. So I think that's how we ought to pray. I think we ought to pray believing in Jesus' name, but we pray according to God's will, according to his timing, according to how he is going to answer that prayer. So much to say about that, but it's trusting his will. Faith must trust God's will. Notice third, this is very philosophical. There's a difference between faith in God and betting on the ferry. Now, I'm afraid that a lot of our praying is like that. James chapter 4, let me give you an example of what I mean. James chapter 4, 
beginning in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there or do business and make a profit. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are a bit of smoke, vapor, that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, this also answers the previous point, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It wasn't wrong that they were planning, but it was the sin of presumption. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So for the person who knows to do good and doesn't do it, it is sin. So we have to be realistic when we pray to God. I don't know if I've shared this, but when I was a boy about six or seven years of age, my dad bought a poster and then he mounted it, framed it, and put it above my headboard. And uh, I was fascinated by it. It was a poster of civilizations. Now, what father would buy his son a poster of civilizations, right? But it was a fascinating poster. It had... Uh, what they wore in that time period, what they ate, uh, transportation of that time period, and then the weapons that were used during that time period. And I remember one night, just as, just as clear as a bell, I can remember this. I looked at that poster, I studied it, and I laid down and I prayed, Lord, if you're real, when I wake up in the morning, I want all those weapons in my room. Now, that's, that's betting on the ferry. That's not praying in faith, right? It's, it's the sin of presumption. And here's the problem. But, but many Christians pray like that. We're, 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 we're praying in, in a way that we're saying, God, fill my room with what I want. Fill my life with what I want. Rather than, Lord... What is it that you want? Praying by faith. Notice also there are different levels of faith. So I want you to take an inventory of where you are with your faith today. First of all, it all begins with dead faith. James 2.17, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. That's repeated in verse 20 and verse 26 as well. Faith without works is dead. Our works don't produce our faith. Our faith is evidenced by our works. How do I know that I have true faith? It is by the works. So I might have dead faith. I might say I have faith, but I'm really not doing anything for Christ. I'm really just living the life I want to live. But I believe there's a God, and I believe church is important, you know, to some degree. You don't want to get, you don't want to get too serious about it, right? You don't want to get too serious about being a Christian. What are people going to think of me if I'm one of those Christians? Like Jesus? One of those Christians? Faith without works is dead. Dead faith. And then there's little faith. Matthew 6, Jesus said, If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? There's weak faith. Again, in Romans, Paul says of Abraham that he lived by faith without weakening in his faith. He was obedient to God without weakening in his faith. Weak faith. We vacillate back and forth. There is increasing faith. Luke 17, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. It's not wrong to pray that. Increase our faith. 
Then there's obedient faith, Hebrews 11, as we studied. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and went out to a place he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. It was obedient faith. First obedience. Instant obedience. Not, not trying to discuss this with God and, you know, uh, debate about it, pray about it, all the rest. Once he's told you what to do, the praying's over. It's being obedient to what he's called you to do. So do I have obedience? When God speaks, I obey. There is working faith. Galatians 5. Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. It has nothing to do with your faith. What matters is faith working through you. It is a working faith. It is an active faith. I'm demonstrating faith. Then there is growing faith. 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. There's evidence we see over time. Uh, as I baptized Ken, I told this before. I said, Ken, it's been real encouraging to see how your faith has grown since you came to know Christ. Just what he's learning and how he's applying you know, his, his new life in Christ. Growing faith. There is strong faith. Romans 4, again about Abraham. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. As he faced the various tests and trials, his faith was strengthened. He had strong faith. Then there is great faith. Matthew chapter 8, I want to read this. <clears throat> Matthew 8, verse 5. When he, Jesus, entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. I will come and heal him, he told him. Lord, the centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be cured. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, I assure you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. Of all the people in the, in the New Testament in particular, who exercised faith, Jesus said, this is the greatest. He gets it. He understands my authority, my power, and what I can do for a person who has great faith. There's mustard seed faith. Matthew 17. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So isn't it interesting how the Bible talks about the person who has great faith, but then you only need mustard seed faith. I, I, I just need to take the faith that I have, as little as it may be, and trust him to do what he can do. Then there is perfect faith, James 2. You see that faith was active together with his works, that is Abraham, and by works faith was perfected. That means it was completed or it was accomplished for its intended purpose. He, he got to the promised land. He got to the land of Canaan by faith. He was able to complete what God had asked him to do. 
Jesus asked this question in Luke 18. When the Son of Man comes, Jesus, will he find faith on the earth? Meaning, what kind of faith is he going to find in you and in me? What kind of faith do you now have? Notice also, faith is an act of surrender. In Genesis 32, we find that Jacob, remember, has the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. He is uh, wrestling with a messenger from God. Many believe it is the Lord Jesus himself, another theophany, an appearing of God, like uh, we see with Moses or whoever. And he's wrestling. And the Bible says this in verse 26. Then he said to Jacob, let me go, speaking to the messenger, let me go, or the messenger is saying, it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob received his blessing from God, not by wrestling with the Lord or this messenger from God, but by clinging to him. It wasn't the wrestling, it was the clinging. It wasn't a demanding faith wrestling with God, but it was a clinging faith, totally surrendered to God. Now he is a broken man. God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. Where do we get the name Israel? He, God changed Jacob's name. The 12 tribes of Israel, of Jacob. So whenever you read the word Jacob in the Old Testament or New Testament, it, it also means Israel. It's often referred to Jacob whatever, meaning Israel. And God blessed him. God blessed him. Notice also true faith produces praise. This may be the most important point that I make today. True faith produces praise. James 1 Consider it great grief, my brothers, when you experience various trials. Well, that's what we live. That's how we act. And what does he say? Consider it great what? Joy. Joy when you face various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So when it comes, I give praise to him. The point is, praise is the greatest expression of faith. How do I know the level of your faith? It's the level of your praise. When the trial comes. Happiness? No, I'm not happy about it. That's an emotion that comes and go. But, but joy is a character of Christ in us. The joy of the Lord is in us. Regardless of what happens. Paul and Silas, they're in the Philippian jail. They're being persecuted for their faith. What are they doing? They're singing praises to the Father. There's joy in their hearts, counting it worthy to suffer for his name's sake. How do you know that you're living by faith? Well, it's the level of your praise, your joy, your gratitude while you're in the fire. Not after, not before, but in the midst of it. Notice also doubt kills faith. In Matthew 14, Jesus is uh, the disciples are on the sea in a boat, and Jesus is walking on the water. Peter attempts to get out and to walk toward Jesus, and then he takes his eyes off Jesus, and he begins to sink. And what happens? Jesus says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You know what he did? He got his eyes off Jesus and onto the circumstances. And when he began to look at what was really going on around him, he said, oh, no, I'm, I'm, it's over. 
So that's why we have to stay focused on Christ in the midst of the storm. Otherwise, doubt will creep in and kill faith. In Matthew 21, Jesus said, I assure you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if I tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. James 1, but let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. An indecisive man is unstable in all his ways. So doubt will kill faith. Notice also we commit God works. Real simple formula. We commit God works. The psalmist says in Psalm 37, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Notice the steps. Commit your way to the Lord and then trust him. And then he's going to act on that. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6? Seek first the kingdom of God, and he'll add all these things to you. The things that you're worried about, the things that really matter in life, God's going to give all that you need in life if you first seek him, his righteousness. Notice next, Satan attacks our faith. In Daniel 10, we've looked at this before. Daniel has been praying and then a messenger of the Lord, an angel of the Lord, says to him, Don't be afraid, Daniel, he said to me. For from the first day that you purposed to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your prayers were heard. I have come because of your prayers. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me for 21 days. Daniel's been praying for 21 days. He's been fasting. And as soon as he prayed, God answered his prayer. But the enemy delayed the message to getting to Daniel. And it's a good word for us because sometimes we're praying and we don't hear a word from the Lord. We don't, we don't understand why he's not answered our prayer. The Bible tells us, this is a great example, that when we pray, he not only hears our prayer, the Bible says, but he answers it. And he's not waiting to answer to figure out what he's going to do. He's God. He's sovereign God. He's almighty God. It doesn't take him a split second to answer your prayer. It's receiving the answer. And sometimes we're not in position ready to receive that. Or the enemy is hindering us from receiving that. He's trying to discourage us and defeat us by delaying prayer. Look, we don't understand all that's going on in the spiritual atmosphere. The conflict, the battle that's taking place. It's between heaven and hell and we're caught in the middle. See, and we're deciding which way we're going to go. And so we need to understand that God hears our prayer. He answers that. And we believe in faith. Don't be surprised if he attacks. William Wilkinson said this. Hell works the hardest on God's saints. The most worthy souls will be tested with the most pressure and highest heat, but heaven will not desert them. Then notice faith is a process that leads to victory. Notice Jesus said in Mark 9, everything is possible to the one who believes. Now as I thought about this point and about my own experience, I thought about a process of faith that, that typically we all go through in life. So what is that process of faith? Well, first of all, there is the word of faith. I'm simply saying that God speaks to us through his word or in our spirit 
God reveals himself to us. He's asking us to take a step of faith. And so we have this word of faith. Right behind that comes the trial of faith. That means faith is tested. God has spoken, and now the trial comes. God spoke to Adam and Eve, and then their faith is tested in the garden, right? Immediately. It's the first thing that happens. So God has revealed to you himself something he wants you to do uh, uh, within yourself or maybe a ministry or whatever else, serve somebody, help somebody, whatever it means. But then you're tested. Third, there's the discipline of faith. I have the word from God. I, I'm, I'm tested about that word. Well, I've got to be disciplined. Faith must be focused. What has God said? That's the only thing I need to worry about. Think of how different life would be had Adam and Eve only been disciplined in their faith and believed God and trusted him at his word. You know, I, I shared the story. I'm not going to share all of it. I was, in, as a college student, I was visiting Redlands, California. I was in a philosophy of religion class. I was there on a mission trip, and the professor was talking about the garden. I mean, the, the garden uh, uh, of Eden. And he said this sentence. He said, if God had only left Adam and Eve alone, think of how great life would be right now. I couldn't take it. I just couldn't sit there, sit on my hands. I'm in the back of the class, and I raise my hand. I'm sure he thought I was some arrogant, stupid kid. But I said, are you saying that God's the reason why there's sin in the world today? That it's God's fault that, that we're experiencing this? And then he went on some diatribe that made no sense whatsoever. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I couldn't believe a, a professor, a university professor, saying that it was God's fault of the result. No. They weren't disciplined in their focus on what God has said. And that's where we're going to get in trouble. So that's the next step in the process. Then there must be patience of faith. You see, faith waits while we're in the battle. While we are trying to live out our faith, we have to be patient. We can't get ahead of our faith. We have to wait on the Lord. We go on the light that he gives us. That's the rule. Then... While we're doing that, there has to be courage of faith. That faith gives us boldness. That we can stay the course. We can live for Christ. We're not ashamed of the gospel. All the rest. Then finally, there is the victory of faith. Faith wins. Listen, faith always wins. We can trust God that in the end, we're going to win. Jesus, or John says this. This is the victory that has conquered the world. What is it that has conquered the world? Notice what he says. Our faith. And who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, why is it they were able to be victorious and that our faith can win? It's because of who Christ is. Our, who is the object of our faith? It is Jesus Christ. If the object of our faith is our faith, we're dead in the water. If the object of our faith is in the church, we're dead in the water. The church is going to fail you. I'm sorry. Don't get bitter about that. This morning I was on a call with about 125 pastors and businessmen. They asked to interview me. And it was about the issue of comparison. How men in particular compare ourselves with other men. 
and how pastors, we compare our churches with other churches and compare me as a pastor with other pastors. And look, we, we, we all get into that trap. And ultimately, our faith cannot be in anything or anyone else other than Jesus Christ. I shared with them that the comparison for my church is not what the other church is doing. It's what Jesus has asked me to do in my church. Am I being faithful to what he's called me to do? What is my assignment? What is the mission of this church? And, and then I do the best that I know to do to lead our church to fulfill what he has asked us to do. And I can't worry about the other guy. And he can't worry about me. He has to worry about what God's told him to do. There's a great passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 about this comparison issue. And then Paul says, I don't compare myself with others. I compare myself with the assignment that God has given me. It's a great line in God's word. Uh, that's free, by the way. The question is, are you living by fear or faith? The decision you made yesterday, did you make that based on fear or faith? What are you going to do with the decision you're trying to make right now? The battle that you're in. Are you going to take the step of faith? Or are you going to cower in fear? Afraid of what others think or do? Do you have the reputation of fear or faith? What about our church? Do we have a reputation in our community of faith or fear? Are we willing to take a step of faith and be bold in our faith, courageous in our faith, to not be ashamed of the gospel? What's our reputation? Now I want to read for you and illustrate this in a passage of Scripture, Mark 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he told them, Jesus, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they left the crowd and took him along and took him along since he was already in the boat and other boats were with him. A fierce windstorm arose and the waves were breaking over the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Don't you care about us? about me he got up rebuked the wind and said to the sea silence be still the wind ceased and there was a great calm then he said to them why are you fearful do you still have no faith and they were terrified and asked one another who then is this even the wind and the sea obey him Persecution attacks you. Then you face the storm of fear, panic, and resentment. Adversity hits you. And you face the storm of doubt, discouragement, and rebellion. Temptation allures you. You face the storm of wrong desires, impure motives, jealousy, hate, and anger. Now listen. If Jesus is in charge and you're living by faith, he's going to create a great calm. You see, the storm was not about the storm on the sea. It was the storm in the disciples' heart. And what were they most concerned about? Do you care? Have you asked the Lord that recently? 
do you care about me? God, I'm in this storm. Where are you? George Mueller, as I said, in the 1800s, had orphanages for hundreds of children in England. During the Industrial Revolution, it was a horrible time. And God had called him just to the ministry of doing these orphanages. There's been much written about George Mueller, about his own account of how God provided for him. He lived by faith. He just simply asked God and God provided in miraculous ways. And someone asked him, how do you do this? He would not ask people for money, for provisions. He prayed and God provided. That would be very hard to do in our culture, wouldn't it? In the ministry. But he prayed. I'm not against that. Hear me, I'm not against that. But it just shows the level of his faith. And he said, I'll tell you how I've come to this point in my spiritual life. He said, I have a card on my desk, and it says this. It matters most to him about you. It matters most to him about you. And he said, it's my interpretation of 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. That's the kind of faith that God is asking of us. Listen. Jesus is not going to invite you to get in his boat and take you to the other side of the lake to the shore only to let you drown in the middle of the lake. That's not his intent. His intent and his ability is to get you where he's leading you to go. He's asking us to live by faith, to trust him, For he and he alone is faithful. He cares about you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? There might be somebody here this morning who would say, Pastor, I don't have faith in God. I don't have that kind of faith that you're describing. Where my life is totally surrendered to him and I'm living by faith. Now, when we mean that in salvation, it means that I'm not trusting in myself. I don't have faith in myself to save myself, to take care of my sin problem. I have faith in God that through Christ, he took care of my sin problem when Jesus went to the cross and died for my sin. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then it says that the wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So by faith, we believe in who he is and what he's done for us and appropriate our faith in that way. So it's not just believing in a story. I have faith in a story. It's my life. By faith, I'm entrusting my life to Him. Now that's where life really gets exciting. That's where you experience real life, true life, abundant life, fulfilling life. When you understand 
how much God loves you. And he's just asking you to love him in return. So in a minute, when we sing this next song, I'm going to invite you to come so that you can give your heart to Christ. We'll help you do that. You may not know what to do, but we do. Most people in this room would say, I love the Lord, and I'm trying to live for him. But you're in the battle right now. Your faith is waning. I want you to be encouraged today. The Lord understands that. And the Lord is right there with you to help you. What matters most to him is you. And he's not going to leave you in the middle of the lake to drown. So call on his name. We sang it a minute ago. Jesus. If that's the only word that can come out of your mouth, Jesus. And he is going to reach down and he's going to lift you up out of the storm that you're in. You can trust him. There might be others that God is leading you to become part of our church family. We're able to do this together. I'm able to learn from your example of faith. We encourage each other when we're in the storm of life. We need that. And that's why he created the church. So if God is leading you to be part of the family here at Linwood, we'd love for you to come. There might be others who want to pray quietly at the altar. Maybe you want someone to pray for you, then we'll do that here in just a moment. Father, I thank you that, as the scripture says, when we're faithless, you are still faithful. Lord, I I pray that we'll learn how to live in that kind of faith. Help us to learn from these examples of faith in the scriptures over the last several weeks, last few months. To learn from those who are in this room. Those who are family members, friends, co-workers who, who, who show great faith. May we learn from them. Help these who need to make commitments now in Jesus' name. Amen.